These are their fearful days. Words of hate, acts of terror, welcomes withheld, truths denied. Anxiety is a constant companion. Hope feels like a stranger. We call out in our anxiety. Show us how you work, God. School us in your ways. Take us by the hand. Lead us down the path of well-being. You are the Savior, aren't you? Mark the milestone of God in love, God. We remind ourselves of God's ancient promises. Justice is coming. Love is on the way. Lift up your heads and watch for the signs. Let us light this first candle of Advent, a candle of hope. In its light, let us think about what signs we are seeing of God at work in our lives and in our world right now. Let us think about where we may contribute to that work. Let this candle of Advent hope shine in our hearts all week and remind us to lift up our heads and open our eyes to watch all around us for signs of the Holy One. Well, we are beginning the season of Advent, and Advent is more than just a really good word to use in your Scrabble or words with friends, if you need to use a V. Uh, Advent is a word coming from a Latin term for arrival or the coming of something, and so we are all waiting in this season for the arrival of Christ, but what's interesting about Advent is it's not just the arrival as in the birth nativity scene, um, but about the return of Christ, about the restoration of all things, about the future as well. And so hopefully in this season, we're going to put ourselves into that mindset of waiting and of watching for the arrival of Christ. We're gonna hopefully have some sacred vision about how to see the world with new eyes as we wait for that arrival. And so, you might find it strange, though, that in the season of Advent, you might expect it to just be about the nativity stories, and yet we start with this kind of peculiar, um, kind of weird text, probably, for most people. It's a text that's imagining some, some bad things going on in a, in a bad kind of future. And so I wanted to ask and to kind of think through why would it start with such a text? So why start with an apocalyptic text? Now, apocalyptic is another interesting word. We did Advent. We should probably talk about an apocalyptic text. Um, apocalyptic texts, uh, we'll get a little bit into that definition, but I just want you to realize that we're talking about genres. And so we read different things very differently. If I'm reading a comic strip, or if I'm reading an encyclopedia, or a news story, or a movie script, a poem, like we always just read those differently and we don't really have to think about it. And so this text today is an apocalyptic text, which means we need to think about what that exactly means. And the way that I kind of will point out genre matters is after the sermon, if I walked down the aisle and somebody stopped me and said, hey, you know, somebody's planning their funeral, you would have a certain tone. Like, oh, somebody's, maybe they're about to pass away, We've got to plan funerals. But if I told you that I walked down the aisle and Jim Stratton stopped me and said a lady was going to plan her funeral, you might guess he's in, going into a joke. And with Jim's permission, I'll finish his joke. That a lady is planning her funeral and she decides that she wants the six pallbearers to wear Detroit Lions jerseys because she says that she would just like them to let her down one last time. 
But, but genre matters, and, and the, what you're reading influences the way that you interpret texts. And so an apocalyptic text is also challenging because we have a modern sense of what that means. Uh, if you hear an apocalypse today, you're thinking about end of world, cataclysmic events, destruction. Um, we say things like you know, a nuclear holocaust or things like that. Um, but an apocalypse in its historic meaning and kind of how it originated was the unveiling of something. It was the revealing of something. I mean, and it literally means unveiling. So it's like people are facing really challenging, difficult life circumstances, and the world looks like it's against them and everything's falling apart. And someone writes a text that's supposed to reveal and unveil the hidden reality, that it's not actually this bad. There's something good beyond this. There's something more powerful at work behind this. And so it's meant to open up your eyes to see the world with new vision. And so we have a text that's trying to do that, and we're going to kind of walk into that and see what it has to say about how do I see the world amidst all of the troubles with new, fresh eyes. And so uh, apocalyptic texts are actually quite interesting, if you, especially if you don't do the normal route of just it's about future prediction. But what does this have to say about how you view the troubles of the world and how you respond to the troubles of the world, I think is very important. So, in our text, if you thought last week was troubling, uh, when we talked about worry and thanksgiving, um, there's a lot of bad things going on in Luke chapter 21. It's not exactly a happy list of things. Um, and so, he's describing an all-encompassing trouble. And so, in the context of Luke 21, it begins the chapter with talking about this widow who offers a couple of coins at the temple. And Jesus says, hey, you know, she's actually more valuable than everybody else here because the temple complex was kind of taking advantage of the poor and the widows, and, uh, and so he's kind of condemning of how they're treating the disadvantaged. And so while everybody's marveling at how beautiful the temple is, he's saying, you know, it's actually kind of corrupt and wicked from the inside. Beyond that, he says, uh, it's going to come crumbling down. It's not going to last. And so the earlier parts of the chapter is about kind of a, a Jerusalem-centric trouble is coming. Armies are going to surround you. There's going to be war and rumors of war. And then when we get to the text that we have, it kind of shifts in focus to a little bit more generic or kind of universal kind of vision. And so when we read Luke 21, verse 25 to start, it says, there will be signs in the sun, the moon and the stars, and on the earth distress among the nations, confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. And I want us to ca capture how all-encompassing that trouble is, because when he lists the sun and the moon and the stars, he's saying that even the heavens are troubled, right? Like from their perspective, that's kind of where God sits. And so like, at these upper parts of the, the universe and their imagination, there's even trouble up there. Like, things are not going well. So if you look up, there's trouble. And it also says that they're worried because uh, they see the roaring of the sea and the waves. And so the water below is coming up. There's not much place to stay if you think above you is falling apart and below you is falling apart and coming after you too. And the sea was seen in that ancient uh, mentality as the place of chaos. A lot of the creation myths have these kinds of um, 
uh, the taming of the, the chaos of the sea. And so maybe it's that primordial, that kind of the fear of everything being destroyed and wiped out and starting over, that the sea is raging against you. So they see everything is not going well. There's no realm in which things are going rightly. And in history, people have seen that all-encompassing trouble. It's kind of humorous almost from our perspective. If you go back and read all of the people who predicted the end of the world for the last 2,000 years or more, um, but you can go through and see, oh, this person said this date, the world was going to end. Um, one of the ones that stood out to me was someone about year 1000, uh, which made me feel like the Y2K kind of thing back again, that someone's like, oh no, when we hit a year 1000, that'll be it. Um, and then they, the, that year came and they're like, wait, maybe it wasn't about the birth of Jesus, we'll count a thousand years from his death, and so they kind of pushed the number off a little bit more. Um, but people throughout time keep proclaiming the world is about to end, and we kind of share in that feeling at some points of our life. Uh, and so we enter into that history. Maybe when you see things in the news about uh, whether it's you know, the climate, whether it's uh, wars, whether it's uh, society seemingly falling apart, if that's part of your, your kind of outlook on things, whether it's uh, hate rising, whatever it is that troubles you about the world, I think you can get into that mindset of like, surely we can't go on like this forever, right? That mentality is stronger if you're a minority group. Now, as someone who has privilege, it's harder to get into that mindset of persecution is coming from all around me and I need someone to intervene on my behalf because I don't know what to do. But in that Jewish ancient context, they are being ruled by oppressive empires. They don't have control of their situation. So their hope is in the divine intervention because they can't see a physical way of getting out of their situation. So they're desperate, hoping for God's intervention. But I think what's impactful about this text is not that we feel like the world is going to end, but how do we react to such all-encompassing trouble? And so I think that's what's really interesting in this text is it offers a few kinds of reactions. If my mom was here, she might tell you a story about when I was, I don't know, I'm guessing 10 years old. Uh, in Texas, you grow up, there's tornadoes. It's just a fact of life. Uh, and so one particular time, there was a big scare, sirens are going off. We had a little closet that went under the stairwell. And so we were kind of hiding in that closet. We had to find our flashlight, our radio, things like that. And my mom remembers me turning to her and saying, well, if I were to die, it would have been a short life. <laughs> and that was a little unsettling, I think, for her. <laughs> uh, for me just to kind of be, you know what, if that's what happens, that's what happens. It wouldn't be great. Um, but, but we have very different reactions, and you might have a different reaction the next day. But how you react to all-encompassing trouble is important. And so in our text, Luke goes on to say, People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads. So he's contrasting two reactions. The one that you probably would expect to see, the world shaking, the heavens, the world below, is fear 
and foreboding. And I like to think about that as, as your knees shaking, too. The world's unstable and you can't ground yourself and you're afraid and you're just you're shaking. And that's kind of the natural reaction. But strangely, Luke tells his audience that when all of these things happen, stand up and raise your heads. Now, maybe your parents told you at some point, increase your posture, you know, sit upright at the table, stop slouching. And some of that's about the kind of manners and whatnot, but some of that is about like, project yourself as confident. Like, stand up, kind of own who you are, don't kind of, you know, kind of, kind of hide your way through the world, but like, be okay with yourself. Present yourself as a certain kind of demeanor. And so when Luke says, stand up and raise up your necks, you might be afraid, you might be cowering under oppression, but he's saying not to live that way, to actually put your shoulders back, stand up, that there's a different reaction that you can have. And what I appreciate about this text is he says why. Like, why raise up your necks? Why, why stand up in that kind of moment? And so he goes on to say, now when these things begin to take place, Stand up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, the redemption language is, sometimes seems kind of financial. It's about paying for something, about maybe you were owed, um, in the concept of slavery, about someone paying for you or something like that. But really, it's just that act of liberation. So whatever it is that acts to unleash someone, to, uh, to liberate someone from an oppressive existence. And so he's saying, you are facing oppression. You are facing this trouble, and liberation is coming. And that's a reason to stand up with excitement and with confidence that there's an end to an oppression that's on on your neck. And so this text joins us with a lot of text in the Bible about God being the God who liberates the Hebrew people from Egypt, that he hears their cries and brings them out of slavery. And there's that running motif throughout the Bible that although we keep oppressing people, we keep enslaving people, we keep mistreating people, that God cares for and hears the cries of the oppressed and of the minority, uh, those who have no power. And so the story doesn't ask Luke's audience to get their swords together and to go defeat the Romans and go overthrow your oppressors. But it says to live in a new way, stand up with confidence that there's about to be some change in your existence. And so he says, stand up, take that body posture of confidence as you look towards liberation. I, I want to note that that earlier reaction about being fearful is also really common if you are the powerful person who's oppressing someone because the uplifting and the liberation of those who are oppressed sometimes feels like oppression to the person who had power. That if you experience a lot of privilege, when someone else earns equality, it feels like you've been pushed down. And so sometimes the oppressive groups feel fear because liberation isn't a good word if you've been harming and oppressing and mistreating others. And so Luke sets up that picture 
Liberation is coming. You can react by being a part, like you can be a part of that oppression and be in fear, or you can be a part of that liberation and stand up with confidence. And I love that he then tells a parable. He tells a little story. He told them the parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. And this is a particularly useful example because in Israel, not all of the trees leaf in the same way, um, but the fig tree was a tree that did lose its leaves in the wintertime, and it gained its leaves very late in the spring. So you know summer's getting close because it, it leaves so close to the summertime. And I think that we might miss a really beautiful thing about if I were to imagine what to compare all the troubles of the world and the hope for liberation and for uplifting, you might think about the world falling apart as a fall time metaphor. The leaves are withering and dying and falling off, but instead Luke gives us a springtime image that all of those things that seem like they should be ugly, terrible, awful things are to be interpreted and seen as tiny signs of life glimmering, that there's a hope, there's a liberation coming, and that, that doesn't seem like the way you should interpret things, but it's this new way of seeing things, that uh, instead of seeing them with fear, you see it with hope and ex expectation. And so I hope that uh, whatever you see in the news, whatever the crumbling society looks like from whatever news source you're, you're watching, that it, instead of terrorizing you and making you feel afraid and not wanting to do anything and to give up, that you might see those as points that we need to see because we need to see where oppression needs to be overthrown, but hope and glimmering life coming through. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, but it's a practice worth taking on. I, I want to note that why is Luke giving us this apocalyptic vision? Why this unveiling that the world events that look so ugly are actually glimmers of hope that something new is about to happen and we're about to get past all of this? Apocalypses, whether it's this kind of little chapter whether it's the book of Revelation, whether it's parts of Daniel and other kind of apocalyptic texts. And actually, um, I've got a few volumes of very large books that are just Jewish apocalyptic texts from this time period. It's very common. Um, most of these stories are not told just to give you a lesson and to find out the future or anything like that. They're told for ethics. They're wanting people to live a certain way, primarily comfort in the face of oppression but how do I continue to live out my faith despite all of the troubles around me? And so Luke likewise gives us this vision, but he turns it to some practical advice about how to live. And so uh, it's with the urgency of time is running short. Make sure you live well. Make sure you live uh, the best you can because time is short. And so he says, be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life, and that the day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. So whatever you are tempted to do whenever the bad news comes, whether that's disengaged with the world, turn the TV off, turn the news off, put the blinders up, um, whether that's 
I just got to go have fun, get away from everything. Uh, Luke has a message of keep heart. Because you can lose your heart pretty easily when you hear all the troubles of things going on. Because you, you feel like it keeps breaking at all the bad stories. But he's saying continue to have a heart. Continue to have that inner strength from that heart. He goes on to say be alert at all times. Keep looking. Sometimes people, again, turn things off, go away, don't want to watch it anymore, don't want to see the ugliness of the world. And that's one of the wonderful things I think about actually doing ministry is seeing everybody's stories together, seeing people that you wouldn't otherwise see, making friendships that you wouldn't otherwise have, hearing stories that you wouldn't otherwise hear. Be alert. Keep looking for how God is liberating the world. Keep looking for those first little leaves, that summer, that justice, that peace, that love, that, that God's rule is coming. Otherwise, we miss out on that. You, you might be a little late to the party uh, that God's reign is bringing, that you might miss out on the, some of those first glimpses of God's rule. Lastly, Luke says, be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he, he hopes that they have strength. And again, uh, have strength to live with faith and conviction, to be a part of God's liberating kingdom and not be a part of the oppression. I think that many of us are on this journey, um, but it can be an exhausting one. It can be a troubling one. And so maybe you just need to hear that to keep heart, to have strength, to keep fighting the good fight, to keep running the good race. And so I hope that our church can see whatever the bad news is as opportunities to partner with God and being that kind of, uh, you know, the Son of Man coming on the clouds. How can the church already be a part of that? How can we already be a sign of hope and justice and love into the midst of a lot of painful, ugly situations? How can we help um, encourage each other, knowing that this is a hard race often, and that people's hearts need encouragement, they need support on this journey? How can we help point out the things that we see where there's injustice, so people can help stay alert, so people don't just fall into their comfort zones and forget those who are facing oppression? How can we help build each other up to find strength to keep going on. My prayer for us all is that may we all be on watch to see the struggles of this world with the eyes of hope that liberation is coming. So God, I ask that you'd bring your justice, your peace, and your love quickly. Amen.